Malachi today, chapter 1, still, still, <laughs> slow and steady. Um, I want to give you a, uh, a lay of the land uh, for the rest of the spring. We have um, a bunch of stuff on the bottom of that lectern is what we have. Uh, we have, including today, five more sessions before we break for the summer. Uh, one of those will be taken up with a visit from a missionary. Uh, on May the 19th, Chip Anderson will be here. He is uh, a pastor with Christ Presbyterian Church in the Hill District of New Haven. And he's going to come and he's going to present on his ministry during Sunday school and then preach for us during worship. I'm very excited, as I'm sure you are, but that means we've got, we've got four sessions to finish out Malachi for the rest of the year, and as we mentioned last time, Malachi is broken up into these different chunks that don't exactly follow the chapters, so we're not taking a chapter at a time, we're taking a disputation or two at a time. Today we're going to look at the longest of the disputations in, uh, in Malachi, uh, that is this question of uh, the honor that the priests are giving to the Lord. It shows up in uh, chapter 1, verse 6, through chapter 2, verse 9. Uh, that's the longest, the most involved disputation uh, next week, Lord willing. We're going to take two disputations that deal with social justice issues together, the idea of marriage and the oppression of the poor in the midst of the land, uh, and then we'll have the week off. And then coming back three weeks from now, we'll deal with uh, a question uh, with worship and tithing again. And finally, the shortest one to end out, but it's the one uh, that gets most of the attention in Malachi because it is the announcement of the messenger who is to come and the priest, uh, the, the faithful shepherd who will come and, and refine the priests of Levi and, and make them to bring uh, true offerings. And it's a, it's a picture of the Messiah who's to come and the messenger who comes before him. So that's our, uh, our, our trajectory for the next few weeks. I'm going to pray and then uh, I've got a few introductory comments. We're going to read Malachi chapter 1 verse 6 through chapter 2, verse 9 together. Let's open in prayer this morning. <clears throat> oh, gracious Lord and God, we thank you that you speak to us. We thank you that you have given us your living and life-giving word and that by your spirit you work in the hearts of those who hear to make us not only hearers but doers of it. Oh, gracious Lord, we pray that you would be kind merciful to us today to expose the sin of our own hearts, that we would not come away from this word thinking how terrible these priests were and how, how horrible it was that worship was profaned in the days of Judah, but that we would come as faithful servants always do, asking the question, uh, is it I, Lord? And so, oh Lord, give us tender hearts and tender consciences before you. Show us uh, the ways that we have failed in many things to be uh, the servants that you call us to be, and, and move us on to greater obedience, uh, but move us on to greater faith in Jesus Christ, our perfect priest, and the one who offers his pure and uh, perfect sacrifice for the, the lives and for the sins of your people. Help us to be founded upon him and upon the, upon the foundation uh, that he has laid in the gospel, and help us to be found in you and, uh, and full and free in Christ. We pray that you would do this for the sake of your name and for the sake of your work among your people. Amen. Now, uh, last time, uh, before we read Malachi, last time we began to look at this prophet, the last of the writing prophets in the Old Testament, and we began to spend really a considerable amount of time talking about the difference between the ministry of Amos, which we studied earlier, and the ministry of Malachi now. And the fact that these are 
almost the two bookends. There, there's the first writing prophet, Amos, the last writing prophet, Malachi, and we talked quite a lot about the differences in their situation, the differences that were happening in the people, and uh, socioeconomic differences, the difference between uh, northern kingdom, Israel, at the height of their expansion, really the golden age uh, during the time of Amos, where things were going well, and there was prosperity, and everybody seemed to be flourishing, uh, and comparing that with the time now after the exile, uh, where people are a bit disappointed. They've been brought back to the land, and the temple's been rebuilt, and it's kind of a shambles uh, compared to what it was formerly. And we talked about some of the, the really, in some ways, positive effect of, uh, of uh, that exile that the Lord put his people through, even though now the difference also of being under the thumb of, uh, of the Persian Empire, rather than free, rather than leading themselves, being under the, the reign of a king in Judah. They're under governors set up by Persia. And uh, we talked about some of the, the blessing, the benefit, at least one of those being the, the difference in idolatry. Uh, that as you see the people coming out uh, of exile and back into the land, one of the things they are kept from, I think, mercifully by the Lord's hand, uh, is formal idolatry, setting up the Baals and the Ashtoreths and, and going to the high places, and those things are removed. There is one place for sacrifice uh, in the land. There is, there is one uh, center for worship, uh, and we began to see some of the, the effects of the economic differences and sociopolitical uh, differences and, and idolatry differences, and yet in the, vast, uh, in the midst of those vast differences, we also began to spoke of the similarities between Amos and Micah, the similarities in pointing out the need of the people, that uh, the people still, even though the situation is very different, they still need to turn from trusting the things of this world and using them as the measuring stick of God's love and mercy. They need to turn to God's revealed word and to the promises of his covenant. And so we found, uh, beginning last week, that the prophets serve as a reminder for us of the constancy of the Lord and his commitment to his plans for his people. After the service, Tim Curran uh, spoke to me, and he, he made, I think, a really great connection between uh, our, our framework for last week and what we were seeing. And he pointed out Luke chapter 7. <clears throat> Excuse me, Luke chapter 7, verses 31 to 35. Uh, Jesus says, To what then shall I compare this people of this generation, and what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. They said, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. I think that was a really good connection, because what we see is that fault-finding sinners will always find fault. It doesn't matter what the situation is. It doesn't matter what the Lord has provided for them. If you are unwilling to submit to the God of creation, you will find reasons, whether you are in the prosperity of northern Israel or whether you are in the destitution uh, of the post-exilic Judah, you will find reasons to be unsatisfied with what the Lord has provided for you. Uh, and it really is a deeper heart issue than, than just the outward circumstances. And this is what we're finding. Uh, the, the same problems, the same spiritual issues uh, will show up in different situations with different problems. The same heart issues will surface. And we began to see that in Malachi uh, as the Lord sends his messenger to the people. And that's what we're going to see again this week as the Lord confronts his people and their worship. So let's turn now to Malachi chapter 1. And I'm going to read uh, beginning in chapter 1, verse 6, and through chapter 2, verse 9. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let's hear the word of the Lord now. 
<coughs> a son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors. You might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. And I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted. And its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what's been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring is your offering. Shall I accept that from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart and give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I've already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I've sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. He turned many from iniquity. The lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. <clears throat> now, imagine for a moment that you've been invited uh, to an important dinner with a foreign dignitary. Unlikely, perhaps, for most of us in the room, I, I grant that. Uh, but it, in, in some respects, it doesn't really even matter who the dignitary is or what country they represent. Uh, there's a certain expectation that comes with something like that. Uh, there is, uh, there's a, an understanding that, that it's something big to sit at the table of honor, to sit in presence uh, of an important player on the world stage. And, and you might go so far as to buy a new suit. You might buy a new dress for the occasion. You might want to make sure that all of your... Uh, 
uh, P's and Q's are in order. You, you want to know what happens in their culture. Is this a culture where they bow to one another? Should you do that? Will you, will you look foolish if you, if you bow and, and find that they don't bow uh, in return? You want to know what to call them, Mr. Ambassador or whoever, whatever their title is. You want to have everything in order, and there's a lot of expectation that goes into that. Uh, and there are things you want to be prepared for, and the occasion and the company really heighten the expectation you have for the experience. All right. Well, now, uh, imagine, uh, perhaps even more implausibly, uh, that that foreign dignitary is your wife or your husband, uh, the person that you know more intimately than anybody else in the world. Would you have a different approach to your family dinner with that person? Uh, would you take your family meals where you get to sit together and commune with that person in fellowship? Would you take uh, for granted what it is to be next to that person that is such an important person uh, on the world stage? Would, would your familiarity with that person uh, lessen your expectation of, of what you would think to find in them? Or would it perhaps even proverbially uh, cause you uh, to grow in contempt? Would familiarity breed contempt? I think that's the issue at the heart of Malachi's disputation here. The Lord is calling his priests to account. Now, who are the priests? The priests are the ones in Israel who ought to know more than anybody else about all the customs, about all the, uh, the, the preparations that go into finding communion with the Lord. They're the ones who are to teach others when they come to commune with the Lord and come to have fellowship with him at his table, it says, which is a a phrase we don't find elsewhere in the Old Testament, the Lord's table. Uh, he's speaking in, in familiar, familiar, fam, familial terms, not familiar, but familial. Uh, talking about a family meal and communion with his people. And he says, you come to my table. And the priest ought to be preparing all the people for what it is uh, to have this communion with the Lord. And they ought to know the most about the procedures of those things. They ought to be the teachers in Israel. They ought to be leading the way for the rest of the people who come maybe once, maybe twice a year, uh, for something that for them is special. They come to make an offering. They come to smell the incense. They come to hear uh, those grand words of that benediction. And the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The people come to hear that blessing and to have the sons of Aaron do what the Lord says they do, when they pronounce those words. Numbers chapter 6, verse 27. Immediately after that benediction, the Lord says, so, that is when they make this benediction, so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. That's what they were coming for. Once in a while for the great feasts and ceremonies to have God's name put upon them and to be blessed by that. And there's an expectation and yet the priests are standing daily saying the same words and lighting the same fires and offering the same offerings, and they are bored with all of it. They're bored with worship, and they are bored with God. And this is the first problem, first specific problem that the Lord of hosts addressed among his people. He talked about uh, their misunderstanding of his love last time, but now he's starting to get specific, uh, and he's dealing out with this issue of half-hearted devotion. In fact, you notice in verse 6, the Lord uh, says that their half-hearted devotion is a disgrace. Verse 6 you, O priest, who despise my name. That's what's happening. And this is one of the central themes of this disputation, that though the priest should be putting the name of the Lord upon the people, their empty worship is actually making the Lord's name seem despicable in the eyes of the people. There is a contempt 
the sacred requirements of worship to make God's name a thing of dishonor. And they make it a thing of dishonor in the very place where he's promised that his name will dwell with his people. And this disgrace, this contempt has spread. It has gone from the head to the body. It's gone from the priest to the people. And the people have recognized that the priests have compensated themselves for their time and for all their efforts. Uh, and they've done it by cutting ceremonial corners. And the worshipers know it. They know the sacrifices they can skimp on. Uh, they know uh, the, uh, the general tone uh, of the honor of God Almighty has been abandoned. And we'll see in this disputation that just as the Israelites in Amos Day had to learn when they thought they could pervert God's worship with their foreign gods and, and with their sacrificial high places, the priests need to learn the same message uh, that God takes worship very seriously. This is what he's telling us, what he's telling uh, the priests in Israel and the people in Israel, that God does not trifle. He will not hold guiltless those who spurn his name and those who teach others to do that so as well. And the Lord will not tolerate heartless worship. <clears throat> now, that's enough of my introductory comments uh, before I just go on and preach a whole second sermon today. Uh, but uh, we're going to tease this out, and I want to know what you're seeing in this passage. Uh, we could break it down into two major sections. Uh, the first is uh, in the end of chapter 1, verses 6 to 14. There's an indictment of the priest. God is explaining their sins. He's showing up and saying, this is where you have gone wrong. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 to 9, God declares punishment. He passes sentence upon them. Because you have sinned in this way, this is what I'm going to bring upon you. But it all has to do with this sin of heartless worship. So let's take them in turn. Uh, God's indictment and also his punishment. As we look at, at the end of chapter 1, verses 6 to 14, what strikes you about this passage? What, what about the sins of these priests? What about the effect that the Lord says their actions are having on the honor that he is due as a great creator of all. What, what grabs you as we read this and you see the heartless worship of the priests? Ronnie? Mm. Oh, yeah. And now, in one sense, <clears throat> I, yes, this is, this is exactly what he's saying. You've, <coughs> excuse me, you, you despise my name by despising my table, uh, by offering polluted offerings and polluted food and all these other things. And I think in one sense, maybe the priest, maybe the people would say, it's, we're offering the right offerings, right? We, he asked for a lamb, we gave a lamb. He asked for a goat, we gave a goat. We, we just use the ones that, weren't very useful to us anyway. There's, there's almost a sense in which you could hear the people uh, justifying their actions. Um, that, you know, when you think about the offerings that are, that are offered, most of the offerings uh, in the temple um, were consumed, not by fire. There were whole burnt offerings that the whole thing was burnt and it was all given over and those happened at special times and for special reasons. Most of the offerings were offered up and cooked and the priests and the people ate them. And it was, you'd gather your family, you'd give an offering, and you'd sit down and you'd have a meal. And you know, a, a lamb with a broken leg tastes about the same as a lamb with a non-broken leg. A pork chop by any other name still tastes as good. 
Um, and so you can almost sense the people justifying themselves. It's a small thing. God wants a lamb, we'll give a lamb. Um, and yet the Lord has some very strict requirements. What was the problem with, with what they were doing, with, with just lessening the requirements just a little bit? What was behind what they were doing? What was, what was the, the justification that was, that was the wrong justification they may have been making? Bill? Now, what makes the difference between those two? What makes the difference? Is it, is it just a matter of dotting, dotting the I's and crossing the T's, or is there something deeper that makes one person give what's valuable and another person... Yeah. Now, I think that's a really good connection, and it and it brings in the heart of the worshiper. It's not just that they they want to follow through with the the letter of the law, which they weren't, because the Lord said, "You shall not bring a blemished offering. You shall not." Especially when He talks about what is taken by violence. Uh, this is probably animals that were maimed. You know, a wolf comes and tears and, and the sheep is limping or, you know. Uh, if, if an animal was torn by another animal, it was unfit for human consumption. You were not to eat it, you were to throw it to the dogs. And they're bringing these things taken by violence or maybe it means things stolen. That's another way to interpret that, things taken by violence. Uh, offerings that you've stolen from somebody else and you come and you, here we go. Um, and these are things that the Lord has expressly said you shall not do, and it reveals the heart of the worshiper. It reveals what they think about God and, and the liberties they can take and the things that he has commanded. Tim, you were going to add to that? Yeah. How so? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and to understand really the, the problem behind this, you need to understand the purpose of the sacrificial system. It wasn't just to give the people meat to eat a few times a year. 
it wasn't just even to cleanse them from the guilt that they felt about their sins. It was meant to point forward to the perfect sacrifice. That's what we saw in our, our Good Friday service. That none of the blood of bulls and goats could actually wash away the sins of the worshiper. But they were all pointing forward to this perfect sacrifice of Christ that was to come. And that's why you were to give a perfect and a pure offering. Because it was costly. It reminded you of the cost of your sin. But it was also meant to be a picture of the perfect sacrifice that was coming. And, and to lessen that and to say, no, 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 we, we, we don't need... We don't need a perfect sacrifice, we just need something good enough. Is to say that you you haven't understood uh, what God is about. You haven't understood the depth of your sin that these things are showing to you. And you haven't understood the remedy that the Lord is is preparing. That that it is some sort of, you know, lowest common denominator that whatever we give, I I guess that'll be all right. God doesn't need the best of, of what he calls us to, because we want that for ourselves, and, and we can give what's left over. And isn't, isn't, you know, we can give God what's left over, and that's the way that we approach a lot of things. Um, you know, we, uh, you know, put out my soapbox here, we, you know, in your spiritual disciplines, we, we rarely approach it in, in terms of how do I order my day and my schedule and my week and my whole life in order to give God the very best of my time? It ends up becoming, where can I squeeze it in? Do I have five minutes here? Do I have, five minutes is better than nothing. Um, but, you know, there's a point at which the Lord uh, said to his people, I wish you would shut the door. <laughs> because this half-hearted worship isn't, isn't what I've asked for. I've, I've asked for wholehearted worship, and I've asked for you to come and to understand what I really require of you and what I'm, what I'm doing in you. Tim, number two? Yeah, he was Tim number one. You're Tim number two. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and why not? What would, what would you expect... Uh, from that governor if you gave a good or a bad offering. He would not be pleased if you gave a, a bad offering. <clears throat> mm. It becomes rote. Uh, and I think this is one of the reasons that, that the Lord is not just speaking to the people. He does speak to the people. Verse 14, cursed is the cheat who vows a male in his flock and yet sacrifices something that's blemished. Cursed, cursed is that man, the, the worshiper. But, but it all comes back to the priest because they ought to be the ones upholding the standards of the Lord. They're the ones who knew it. They're the ones who ought to be teaching it. And they ought to be heightening the solemnity of the worship experience. And, you know, you think of, of James. Not many of you ought to be teachers, brethren, because you know that those who teach will be held to a stricter standard. Well, in what sense? Well, well in the eyes of men, certainly. You, you don't want to be seen to be a hypocrite before men, but, but also because the Lord has given great responsibility, and with that responsibility, he, he calls to account. He tells uh, in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 13, uh, he tells the, the, 
members of a church to, to submit to your leaders uh, and, and not to, I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't have the exact language here, um, uh, but uh, to allow them to, to do their diligence and their duties in the church as those who will have to give an account for your souls. There's a, there's a responsibility and a leadership. And the people, the priests, uh, were supposed to be giving an account for the souls of the people who were under them in the worship of the Lord. And, and the, the Lord's name is doubly profaned because not only do they profane it, but they teach others to profane it as well. And, and it, it really just lessens the understanding of who God is and, and what he is, how he is supposed to be understood by his people. Good. Yeah, Scott. <laughs> Notice the way that the Lord is reasoning with his people. Uh, in this disputation, and even in the next one, um, <clears throat> take a look at verse 10. I know we didn't read it. Chapter 2, verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? The Lord begins um, with, with a, a, a sort of argumentation that you ought to know better, right? Uh, how do you treat your father? It's the same way that he opens this one. A son honors his father, a servant his master. If then I am a father, where's my honor? And this is not only a, a sort of general human principle that parents ought to be honored, but this is God's revelation. This is the fifth commandment. You are to honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land in which the Lord is bringing you. And the Lord is saying, you know this already. And even on a human level, whether it's governors, whether it's servants and masters, whether it's sons and fathers, you know those who ought to be honored, and so you are guiltless. Uh, you're, I'm sorry, you're, you are excuseless. Uh, you have no excuse before the Lord because you know what is right of you, and yet you, exactly as you said, well, this doesn't reflect poorly on us. It would if, if we could see the person. We could feel shamed, but we don't see him. We stand and we... You know, we, we see this, the sights and we smell the smells and, and God seems unreal to us behind that curtain and in that holy place and there's a separation. And so it's easy to, uh, to deal in realms of theory rather than in, in realms of reality when we're talking about the honor that we give to the Lord. Uh, I, I think this is, this is really important because we, we often see this. Um, and I think it, it is a true statement that, that you, um, you tend to want to impress those that you don't know very well. Whereas those that you know better, you, you, you get slack. Ask the couple that's been married for a few years. And you're dating and you're courting and it's, oh, I want them to think the best of me and I, I would never do anything to, uh, to offend them. And you walk on eggshells around one another and five years into the marriage, it's a, well, and, you know, and, and you, you grow slack. Um, and the same thing happens, I think the Lord is saying, in worship. The same thing is happening with his people. Uh, that maybe at one point the worshipers really cared an awful lot about approaching the Lord. Maybe at one time the priests really cared an awful lot. But, but the more familiar they become, the, 
the more that changes the approach. Good. Did you notice um, what exactly the Lord is saying is being profaned? What is being despised? What is it? His name. Why is that important? What do you know about the importance of somebody's name in the Bible? Yeah. It's who they are. It is their very character. Um, you think about, uh, where is it? <clears throat> Let me find it. Here it is. The first occurrence of the phrase, the name of the Lord. It's in Genesis chapter 4, verse 26. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean that they were just using the name of the Lord as an incantation? It was some sort of magical fairy dust or, you know, rabbit's foot. No, it was, it was calling upon God's character. This is who we know God to be. This is who we believe he is. It's calling upon all that God is, all that he promises, all that he represents. They began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, Isaiah chapter 30, verse 27, Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger and thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury. His tongue is like the devouring fire. His name comes with those things. His name comes with fury and devouring fire because his name comes with all of his holiness and all of his character and all of, all of his justice and righteousness. His, his name conveys who he is and who he promises to be to his people. Uh, one uh, commentator says um, one's name, one Shem, uh, which interestingly enough, if you, you, uh, you know uh, Jewish friends, they, they don't use God's official name. They don't call him Yahweh or Yahweh or however you want to pronounce it. Uh, they normally don't even call him Lord. They, they don't even say God. They'll call him Hashem, which is the name. That's what they call him. Uh, when devout Jews talk about God, they say Hashem, the name. So one's name was understood to be a manifestation or representation of one's nature or character uh, similar to their honor or glory, and it ranged in meaning from being equivalent to the person himself to being equivalent to the, per the reputation. And so in other words, what they knew of God, his name, didn't impress them. The most precious truth in all God's word is that the Lord has made himself known to us, grasping us in his redeeming love, but bitterness in the hearts of the priests had numbed their spiritual senses. They profaned the name of God. And they didn't think they were profaning the name of God. They thought they were, they were being slack in worship. No, it's, not, it's not God's character. It's not his name. It's not uh, his reputation. It's just the things that we bring. It's just the offerings that we make. And the Lord says, no, 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 no. You're, you're making my name an abomination. And you compare that with what the Lord says uh, his, his uh, object is here, right? Um, and uh, it shows up in, in verse 11. From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it, that is, you profane my name, when you say that the Lord's table is polluted. Pay no attention to the official photographer for the new website. Um, and the Lord is saying, this is what happens. When worship is profaned, God is profaned. And he won't keep up with that. He won't put up with that because his object is to have true worshipers everywhere. 
That's the trajectory that he's, he's moving his people into. And he says, I'm going, to be, I'm going to be honored and glorified. It shows up again at the end, verse 14. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And so what's happening here? Well, it's a, it's a misunderstanding of what our worship is about. It makes it about us rather than about the Lord. It makes us uh, about what, uh, what we can give rather than what the Lord has required. Uh, and here's how Douglas Stewart says, says it. He says, disbelief, not accidental failure to maintain the standards, was the priest's real fault. Tradition had replaced the Word of God. An evolved system of worship had gradually replaced a revealed one. What's the problem? It's disbelief. Disbelief that God is actually as honorable as He says He is. Disbelief in all the character of the Lord that He's revealed. And when that creeps into your worship, you show up and it's, it's humdrum and it's boring because you forget who you're coming into the presence of and who you're coming to worship. You think that it's about you and you think that it's about uh, how it makes you feel at the end of a worship service. And, and did you come away feeling light and glad and happy? Is it, is it a wonderful experience? But the point is the glory of God. That's what worship is, is all about. Good. We, we've covered that first section pretty well. Anything else that you want to you want to draw out before we move on to the next part. Scott. Yep. In what sense? What do you mean? That's a good... That's a good connection because we, we can feel really um, removed from this whole situation because we don't bring lambs. We, we don't show up twice a year with our goat and offer that and an ephah of fine flour. And, and it, it seems foreign to us. But we are called to give offerings. Romans chapter 12 Offer yourselves as a, as a whole sacrifice, a living sacrifice. The one that's not consumed um, for, for food, but the one that is consumed by the Lord, offered up completely to him. Uh, this is your spiritual worship, your acceptable offering to the Lord. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and there's the question of uh, whose standard is the judge of what is acceptable. Is it our standard of what's acceptable, or is it God's standard of what's acceptable? I think a, a really uh, a good connection here, uh, I said we covered the first part, but I'm going to keep going. Um, think, of, think of David. Uh, th this verse 14, this idea of a vow and not paying it, this is, this is really important. We've got lots of directions we could go with this, but but think about the, the free will offerings and the sacrifices. Think about the sacrifices that were brought in the Old Testament. Um, one of the, um, the standards was that it would cost you something. Think about David uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 24. He has uh, made a census of the people, even though he was told by the Lord in his word that he ought not to do that and trust in chariots and, and numbers and all these things. 
uh, and the Lord sends a plague against the people, and then the angel of the Lord shows up at the threshing floor of Aruna, uh, and uh, David goes to offer a sacrifice to the Lord, and he wants to buy the threshing floor and the oxen that are there to make an offering, and Aruna says, I give it to you. My king, I, I give it to you. You can have it. Make an offering to the Lord. May the Lord accept you. What does David say? Uh, but the king said to Aruna, 2 Samuel 24, 24, no, but I will buy it for you for from a I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. And so David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. What's 50 shekels for David? Who cares? Right? He has the, the treasures of, of Israel, but he, he has this standard. You do not offer to the Lord that which costs you nothing, because to offer that is not to make an offering at all. And when the Lord calls us to, to offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, he expects that to cost us. He expects that to dig deep. Uh, and, and there's some cross-pollination here, I admit, uh, with a passage we're going to be looking at later today in Luke. So, so bear with me. Um, but, but there is this idea that the Lord calls his people to costly obedience and, and to costly following of his name. Um, I, I might have used the example before, Rosaria Butterfield uh, is, uh, is now famous in, in conservative Christian circles because she left a life of lesbianism and, and now is following in the Lord, married to a Reformed Presbyterian pastor, raising some adopted children. She's uh, she has turned from a life of sin in at least that respect and trying to walk in obedience to the Lord's commands. And she says, people will come up to her and they'll say, I can't believe what your faith cost you. I can't believe what you had to give up to follow the Lord. And she says her response is always, well, what has your faith cost you? What, what have you had to give up? Because if you haven't, maybe, maybe you're not offering anything. And it's not about, uh, you know, being, you know, a sort of one-upmanship. Can you give more than Rosaria Butterfield? That's not the question. And the question is, are you, are you offering yourself as a living sacrifice? Will you, will you offer something that does not cost you anything? And pat yourself on the back and feel like, I've, I've really done something wonderful for the Lord, haven't I? That's, that's the problem uh, in Israel that he's exposing. All right, so, so let's move on to the second part. Uh, the Lord uh, gives uh, his... Uh, the, the Lord gives his judgment. We move into the second portion. What are the main failures of the priest here? What were they supposed to be doing? What did they fail to do? And what is the Lord's punishment for their sins? What do you see? Chapter 2. We've got approximately three minutes before I go on another tirade. Isn't that interesting? We typically think of the priests as... Uh, merely the, um, you know, you, you, you watch the movie and at the end there's the best boy, there's the, there's the grip, there's the, uh, the person that, that handles the lights. We tend to think of the priest in the Old Testament as just the background uh, while the worshipers are deal doing the real thing. But there was, there was a real instructive element to the priest and to their responsibility. Uh, they were the mediators, they were the, the go-between that the Lord had, had set up, not just to offer the sacrifices of the people, not just to pronounce the blessing, but to instruct. Notice verse 7, what it calls the priests. For the priests, uh, the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Now this is, 
near and dear to Malachi. His name means my messenger. This is one of the, the, the big directions that the whole thing is moving. The Lord is sending his messenger, chapter 4, before the king who will suddenly come to his temple. My messenger will appear. And the Lord is saying, look, here's my problem with you. You're supposed to be messengers of the Lord Almighty. You're supposed to be teaching the people. That's what the priests were, were supposed to be doing, and they failed to do that, uh, and that was part of their despising the Lord. Tim? <clears throat> mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Exodus 32 is a great connection. 34, sorry. The larger context of Exodus 34 is a great connection in Exodus chapter 32. Um, yes, it is, it is this revelation of God's name, right? Uh, and the Lord came down and proclaimed uh, his name to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, a God gracious, compassionate, abounding in steadfast love uh, and forgiving iniquity, yet who does not hold the, uh, the sinner guiltless, but punishes iniquity and transgression and sin to the fourth generation of those who hate him. This idea that this is who he is, it's his very character. Now that comes in the wake of the golden calf, where in chapter 32, the Levites and the sons of Aaron are set aside. Why? Because the people are going astray, because Aaron, I don't know, I threw the gold in the fire and poof, <laughs> out it came. I don't know how it happened, he says. Um, but, but Moses stands and he says, who is on the Lord's side? And every one of you strap on your sword and go throughout the land, go throughout the camp, and kill your brother and your son and your father and your cousin and stand for the Lord, and they did. And, and the Lord says, um, Exodus chapter 32, verse 29, verse 28, the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. That day about 3,000 men of the people fell Verse 29, and Moses said, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one, at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. A blessing uh, upon the Levites. And, and this is some of the language where the Lord is talking about his covenant with Levi in this second section, that he's called them, he's set them apart. Uh, we see it also in, in um, God's covenant with Phineas. Numbers chapter 25, verse 12, this is after the worship of Baal Peor in the wilderness. The Israelites whored after the daughters of Moab. That, by the way, is a convenient theme for what comes next in Malachi. Uh, it's, it's intermarriage. It's leaving uh, the wife of your youth to be uh, married to the, the daughters of the foreign nations. Um, and in a similar situation, verse 12, Numbers 25, verse 12, Therefore say, Behold, I give to him, that is to Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. There is this idea of being set aside, and what are they set aside to do? They're, they're set aside to instruct and to teach, to be on the Lord's side, even if the people should not be on the Lord's side, uh, and to take, to take their stand with the Lord and not with the uh, the the movings of the culture and, and the influence of the people. Tim? Yeah. 
They did, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and they, got, they got their cities uh, throughout the land because God wanted his, his people who were for him scattered throughout the tribes, uh, that they would give pure instruction. So you could only offer uh, a sacrifice in the temple. You can receive instruction anywhere. And so he took his, his priests who had pronounced the benediction. He took his Levites who had pronounced the benediction, and, and he scattered them throughout Israel. Uh, and, and they were mediaries, uh, in some sense, mediators between God and the people wherever they were, and that was, that was their inheritance from the Lord. And they received blessings and benefits. They received perpetual inheritance and some of the dues and the grains and the offerings. It was, it was shared among those who served in the temple. Uh, but it was. It was this, uh, it was really a picture, you know, we, we mentioned, uh, I think you mentioned, uh, this idea that we're all priests. That was... Exodus 19, I, I'll, make to you, I'll make you a kingdom of priests, my, uh, my holy nation. And so there's a sense in which all the people of God are meant to be priests. Uh, but he, he chose these ones particularly to, uh, to teach and instruct the people in, in what God requires and to uphold his, uh, his perfect statutes. It's good. What else? Uh, what do you see in the, the second uh, portion? What does the Lord... Uh, promise to do? How does he promise to, uh, to bring judgment upon these priests? This is in verse 1 and 2 into 3. Nasty things. What do you see? Ronnie? Yeah, okay. Mm. Well, where does that language come from? Being despised and humiliated. Well, it does sound like Christ. Um, and he's the one who takes the punishment. Uh, and he was humiliated and he was despised of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with sufferings. But this is, this is what we might call in the Old Testament retributive justice. What did the Lord say in chapter 1, verse 6? Uh, you despise my name. What was the Lord doing with the priests? I make you despised. You're going to be a disgrace before the people. They're going to see you, and they're going to see through your sham worship. Uh, you know, it's interesting when you look uh, in the days of Christ, um, the priests and the priestly family were a, were a, a puppet head, just a figurehead, a puppet dangling on the strings of Rome. And they came in, and they pulled out the priest they didn't want, and they put the priest that they wanted, and they tried to influence the people through that, which is why... You see the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests join together and they say, if it keeps going like this, the Romans are going to come in and take away our people and our place and our nation. What are the priests worried about? They're worried about what Rome will do to them if Jesus gets out of hand. And they're humiliated. Everybody knows by that point this is the way the priests work. How do you get ahead as in the priestly family in, in Israel? Well, you curry the favor of the, the foreigners and, and the Romans. And they're despised. And the Lord makes them a humiliation. Um, interestingly, he holds, uh, and even in that, that very instance, thinking of, of John chapter 18, it is yet the, the high priest who spoke true instruction, who said it's better that a man should die for the sins of the people than the whole people. And he didn't say this of his own accord, but because he was high priest, the Lord's still speaking instruction through his messengers. Really an interesting dynamic there, but I, I digress. Meredith, you were going to add to that. How is the Lord uh, punishing these, these men? Is that where you're going? Yeah, yeah. Um, they were uh, being tried by uh, 
Yeah, there is, there is this uh, almost delicious double meaning in the Hebrew here. Um, in this one and in one of the other um, curses that the Lord brings, uh, one, he says, I will curse your blessings. Uh, two, I will rebuke your offspring, or, or the, the word really there is seed. And both of those are interpreted in various ways. The, the idea of cursing your blessings could be, I will curse the blessings you receive as priests. That, that was their due, the things that they received from the people. Uh, but I think a much better way to understand it is the blessing that they made, the Lord bless you and keep you, their benedictions. And the Lord will turn their benedictions of the people into maledictions, their blessings into curses. We could go a, a lot more deeply here that a lot of the language in this disputation is taken directly from that ironic benediction in Numbers chapter 6. You could go through, and, and it's just it's vocabulary scattered everywhere. Actually, when it talks about uh, chapter 1, verse 6, um, Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? The word uh, for show you favor actually is will he lift his face to you? The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And the Lord says, I will not lift my face to you. Even though that's what you're, you're spreading your hands and you're, you're telling the people, the Lord says, no, I'm going to take the blessings that you pronounce, they'll actually become a curse because you're leading them in the wrong direction. The same double meaning with this idea of your seed will be cursed. Well, maybe uh, it, it's... It's cursing the things that they get and the grain that comes in and, and uh, the, the inheritance they receive from the people. It could also be weeding out the priest by attrition, that their sons will not serve after them. Uh, and this idea that, that the Lord is overturning, this is what he does. They've used their position to teach the people incorrectly, and the Lord says, I'm going to set it right. I'm going to put things the way they ought to be. Now, uh, let's let's see a, a final connection here before we close. That was a, a, good, uh, a good point, Meredith. Thank you. Take a look at chapter 4. I'm sorry, chapter 3. Try not to sing uh, Handel to yourself when you read it. Behold, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears, for he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi. This is what he's talking about earlier here, this impure offering. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. And then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. What is the Lord doing? He's keeping his covenant uh, for perfect offering, for a blameless and, and a sinless offering. Uh, and it will be through Jesus Christ, the new and the, the better high priest, and he will institute this covenant, not just with Levi. I think the way the Lord keeps his covenant is that he expands it, uh, that, it that it becomes, again, this priesthood of all believers, this pleasing and acceptable sacrifice, not because of what we can do, but because of the way the Lord is working through us, the way that the Lord has cleansed us and makes us to offer pure and acceptable sacrifices to him. And in a sense, we believing in Christ and standing on him are the, the sons 
of Levi, men and women together, sons of Levi, the, in, the inheritors of this covenant that we, we can actually be accepted. Think about that, uh, that benediction I use at the end of our, our services very often. And now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight and offering. Where does it come from? It comes from the Lord and it returns to him and the Lord says it's pleasing to me because I'm doing this in you because I've given my priest, uh, my, uh, my shepherd, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's a good place uh, to end today, I think. Uh, and we'll come back next time and look at, uh, at Malachi chapter 2. Uh, and uh, Yeah, chapter 2 and chapter 2. Um, but we'll look at some of these social justice issues. Thank you for your time and your patience as we got through this today. Let's, uh, let's pray that the Lord would prepare us for worship with him today. Gracious and righteous Lord, we are humbled and we are convicted, and we are laid bare by your word. And we confess that we are those who all too often content ourselves with offerings that cost us nothing. And you have called us uh, to give pure and true offerings. And we're seeing the fulfillment of your promise that your name would be honored from the rising to the setting of the sun. And we see the way your gospel truth has canvassed the globe and continues to advance not only here in America, but in the global south and in many places where believers are persecuted and, and harmed because they belong to you. And your kingdom continues to grow. And so we thank you that you have made us a part of that. We thank you that you work in us your good and perfect will to give us uh, pure and acceptable offerings through the work of our great high priest. We pray that you would prepare us as we come into your presence for worship. Draw us near to yourself. Show us more of your glory. May we never come and think lightly of your character and despise your name, but may we be those who go into the world declaring the glories of the one who has called us from darkness and moved us into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of your son, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.